it's probably more of a drinking game than it is an informational <laughs> experience. Coming to you from the heart of Thomas Jefferson's Academical Village, this is Academical, the official podcast of the Virginia Policy Review. The Virginia Policy Review is an independent organization staffed by students at the Frank Batten School of Leadership and Public Policy at the University of Virginia, with a mission to publish work that will impact the wider policy debate. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Academical. Welcome in. My name is Sean Belowski, and I am a second-year MPP student. I'm excited about today's episode because this is one where where I learned a lot, especially not coming from the world of politics. I came to bat in my career to this point. I've been in in media and then in finance, but I have not worked in politics. And so our co-host today is Robert Greer, and Robert is also a, a postgrad student. And Robert is somebody who I have really come to to enjoy getting to know and admire through this program. And Robert actually he does have a background in politics, working on campaigns and specifically with fundraising. And so we'll talk with Robert um, about those topics, about how he's feeling. And then he and I had a great conversation with Thomas Bowman. And Thomas is actually a... um, he works right now as a, as a political consultant for, for Resolute Strategy, but he has a, a decade of experience in Virginia politics and, and working on campaigns. And I, I came to know of Thomas because he actually co-hosts a podcast called Transition Virginia, and they do a great job of, of covering issues that are that are pertinent to the state, talking to decision makers. And really, you'll hear him talk about it. The goal is to kind of provide some historical record for this, um, for this kind of transition that Virginia is undergoing right now. Now, this kind of blue wave that it's currently on. And so they do a really good job. And that's how I came to know of Thomas and his work. And then we had a conversation about some work that he's done in the past, and in particular around the Competitive Commonwealth Fund, which is a PAC that um, that he co-founded back uh, about four years ago that really tries to get uh, Democratic candidates, recruit Democratic candidates to run in traditionally conservative districts. And so we had a really interesting conversation with, with Thomas about that. And also about just his thoughts about the upcoming election, particularly as it pertains to to Virginia. So um, let's get to it and let's uh, let's meet Robert. So, Robert, we always we asked our guests and we we asked Thomas this question to start off. But I'll I'll ask you, you know, simply how uh, how are you feeling here in, in late October as we're now seven months into into the pandemic, have election coming up in a few weeks? How are you feeling? Well, Sean, I think that's the right framing. Um, there's a lot going on. There's a lot coming up. So uh, tired is the short answer. And I think maybe the popular answer at this point. Um, but uh, I feel like I'm hanging in there. I, I hear that. I hear that. It's, it's all we can do right now, right? That's right. And Sean, you know, you always ask people how they're doing. I want to turn it back on you. How are you doing these days? Oh, man. That it, you know, it, it's funny because we, we asked Thomas this in the in the um, we asked him coming up in our conversation, and and it truly is like I, I thought it was a, a you know a, kind of coming up with a strategy. I thought it was a simple question, but it really is a loaded question. And you know, I, I think it just varies day to day, right? It truly varies day to day, and I think you just have to. You have to hang in there and understand that there's going to be frustration, understand that there's going to be fatigue and, and really do, do the best you can. And, you know, I mean, in a lot of instances, and this leads into the question I'm going to ask you is, you know, it's these kinds of problems and these kinds of um, instances that it kind of brought me to Batten or drew me to Batten, I guess, 
Um, and so I'm curious with you because you, you've worked in worked in politics, um, you know, since your undergrad. You know, why why did you make your way to Baton? Sure. So uh, for folks who don't know quite so much about uh, my background, I graduated from Christopher Newport um, back in 2014. And I uh, had been working in politics since then. I actually had the opportunity to work on a couple of congressional races in the Charlottesville area. Um, and when we were recruiting interns for our campaign, uh, our top performers consistently came from the Batten School here at UVA. Uh, and so after the, uh, the 2018 cycle, I think I was, was feeling a little bit burned out on campaigns, particularly just the nature of, of moving from place to place and picking up these uh, jobs which last you know, six or nine months, and then you just have to pick up and move again. Uh, and I was looking for something that would be a little bit more consistent or at least set me up to be in a, a little bit more able place long term. And so you know, I thought back on the, the experiences uh, that those uh, interns had shared with me about uh, their, their experience in the patent program. And that's, uh, that's what got me into the door here uh, in Garrett Hall, just to, uh, to see what it was all about. And it seemed like a great fit. Do you want to, um, you know, I, I hear folks who work on campaigns and, um, our guest Thomas also, you know, worked on campaigns and, and just the adrenaline that comes with that. You mentioned kind of being burnout, which I can completely understand. I can't imagine where, you know, campaign staffers on November 4th, you know, how they're, how they're going to be feeling. Um, but, but is that something you want to, you want to continue with or, or did you kind of get your fill of that? So, I, I guess the short answer is it depends. Having stepped away from it for uh, a couple of years now, um, this uh, this conversation that we had had with Thomas uh, was really engaging, and it it sort of made me think back on the uh, the better parts of campaign because certainly there are there are are happy days as much as there are stressful days. Um, and so it's something that I'd, I think I'd still like to be involved in to a degree, but probably not uh, to the same level where I was before. I, I told you, and, and the conversation we get into is really about kind of the, the strategy behind a lot of campaigns. And, you know, when, when we decided to, to talk with, with Thomas Bowman, who's our guest, and he uh, co-hosts a, a podcast called Transition Virginia, and that's where I came to know, know of him. But he also, you know, worked on campaigns. He's a consultant now, has his own um, political consulting shop. But he, he started a, a pack where it was basically, you know, trying to field Democratic candidates in basically every um, every um, district for House of Delegates in, in Virginia. And so, you know, we talk a lot about strategy. And this is something, Robert, that I was really new to me because I don't have that politics background and just the numbers behind it and what it takes to win. And really, it's very formulaic. And when you think about it, it makes sense. But it was something that was very new to me. And I, I'm curious, you're thinking, you know, coming from from that world where you're constantly have these benchmarks and whether or not that's evolved, um, you know, after you you've kind of taken a, a step back in the, this last year, year and a half. So I think the traditional thinking behind campaigns is relatively simple. And that's did you win or did you lose? And 
the winners are the ones who get 50% plus one of the vote or sometimes in a more crowded field, get more votes than everyone else. Uh, and I think there's, there tends to be a little bit of uh, over emphasis on the outcome just relative to that benchmark. Um, and I think as we've gotten more advanced data over the last decade or so, maybe more, um, there are a lot more metrics out there that can be valuable in terms of assessing progress or, or victory or success or however you want to put it. I mean, if you are, for example, the Democratic candidate running in a district where Democrats usually get 20% of the vote and you get 45%, that's huge. That's incredible. Mm. But if you didn't win, then that's just the binary, like last time they didn't win, this time they didn't win, no change. When, when in reality, the underlying metrics are either you moved a ton of people to change your mind or moved a ton of people to show up who weren't showing up before, or, you know, you found a message that just really resonates uh, with people in a way it didn't, or the demographics in the district are changing. Um, so I, I think that that is, is an important metric that it can be overlooked by just the very simplistic analysis. Mm -hmm. I think another metric that has become more and more important in politics is fundraising. Uh, and maybe I'm a little bit biased because that that was my role on many of these campaigns was uh, the the finance director in charge of of raising and and spending money. Um, but in the era of of Citizens United, where outside groups can spend unlimited amounts of money, uh, and also in an era where candidates can connect with voters in a very one-on-one uh, -on -one way online and send you know targeted messages and also voters or really anyone can respond with sending five dollars on their credit card um, we're really seeing a campaign finance as a metric for uh, who's engaging voters both in terms of dollars raised and number of of contributors i think that's also a sort of a attention that you see in people claiming fundraising success uh, Virginia is a little bit of a unique case where uh, we, we have very few rules on fundraising for state level races in Virginia. Um, one of the places where there are, are no rules are contribution limits. Uh, Sean, if, you, if your bank account had $100 million, you could write a check for $100 million to someone who's running for governor or a state house of delegates or anything in between, and that would be legal. Um, if you had a company that had a trillion dollars in the bank account. You could write a trillion dollar check from a corporate account to a campaign in Virginia. <laughs> um, I wouldn't recommend putting a trillion dollars on one campaign. You're going to run out of uh, efficient ways to spend it, but it would be legal. Um, the, the only obligation on the campaign is to report the, uh, the name and address of the person who sent that contribution. If it's larger than a hundred dollars. I, I think it's, um, and this is something where I think my my appreciation for for this is needs to um, I think maybe I don't know if it's become more sophisticated or or evolved because you know n not having that background and not going through it 
and not truly understanding the resources it takes to get someone elected, right? Um, because I, I think I just have this, uh, oh, you have two candidates and, you know, let's have this this battle of ideas, right? And, and people are going to, you know, figure out like who, who it is that they like and who they don't like. But, but it, it, it's so simplified and it's so, but I think what I have to fight is, um, and I think, I think a lot of people too, I think might have to fight is just when they hear the, the fundraising stuff and when they hear it, like, like I, I just get really deflated. Right. <laughs> like I just, you know, when, when people, cause it just feels like it's so, so simplified and just, and just kind of glosses over a lot of things. But I, I think on my end, like I have to be more sophisticated in, in how, um, and people like me, I think need to be a little more sophisticated in, in what it takes to get elected. And I'll tell you, it, uh, it varies from, from place to place. Uh, there are some, uh, some districts that are competitive enough in media markets that are expensive enough where a race for the house of delegates in Virginia it might take raising half a million dollars or a million dollars to win, which is insane for a job that pays like $17,000 a year and meets uh, three months in the, in the on year and two months in the off year. Um, but I think really the reason why fundraising is so important is because fundraising, the biggest thing that it pays for on campaigns is communicating your message. and you're right. In the ideal, you've got two candidates or however many candidates up on the stage and they're asked questions about important policy topics and they give their answer on how they see the world, how they would govern people. Listen to that thoughtfully and select a candidate that best represents them. In reality, we don't have that. Uh, most people don't tune into debates. I mean, even at the presidential level, uh, it's probably more of a drinking game than it is an informational experience. Uh, and for state level or, or local level uh, candidates, vast majority of voters are not tuning in uh, to debates. The vast majority of voters are not, um, you know, reading their, their local newspaper and thinking through the issues and considering the op-eds. Um, Really, they're, they're just going to go by what gets put in front of them, which are advertisements. Um, and you can have a, the most qualified candidate with the best analysis of the issues, the best understanding of the district. And if they can't pay to get that message out through the mail and through television ads and through uh, increasingly online ads, no one will know. And, and that is especially true when there's a fundraising discrepancy, which I think is probably the, the bigger challenge. It's not that you have to raise a million dollars to win a race necessarily. It's that you've got to raise and spend a million dollars to be competitive. And if both candidates raise and spend a million dollars, then the better message probably wins. If one candidate spends a million and the other guy spends 50K, voters just aren't going to know who they are. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a, um, that point is very well taken. Well, I, I know personally, uh, Robert, I, I've learned a lot, you know, just honestly in, in this short conversation we've had, I learned a lot with the conversation with, with Thomas Bowman. And so let's, uh, let's get to it and let's, um, let's, uh, here's our conversation with, with Thomas Bowman. So Thomas, you know, we actually start 
these episodes with all of our guests with just a very simple question, especially considering everything that's gone on since March with COVID, pandemic, um, you know, civil unrest. We have an election coming up very soon. Just simply, how, how are you feeling? <laughs> oh, well, that's a loaded question just right off the bat, I suppose. Um, cautiously optimistic, I guess, is what I can say. Um, you know, this... I don't think anybody signed up for 2020 being as difficult of a year as it has been and almost 300,000 dead Americans, uh, over a million people dead around the world. Um, certainly not what I had in mind on January 1st, 2020. Um, and I have done my best, I suppose, just to stay home and uh, socially isolate. I started a business in January, which wound up studying COVID. Um, so I feel like I do know more than the average bear, but no more than any of the experts, right? So uh, that's how I've been making my money, uh, studying that for uh, clients and political impacts and predicting uh, that down the line. And I'm, I, you know, I, I guess the good news is I've been accurate, and the bad news is I was not optimistic or not pessimistic enough, I guess. So um, <clears throat> yeah, I'm doing fine. My wife, we moved to Richmond. My wife's in grad school here at uh, VCU uh, studying uh, education policy uh, in special education. And I'm trying to grow my business. And we're doing, uh, this podcast got started, uh, Transition Virginia, the podcast got started as a way to document for history the conversations and the attitudes around this transition of power, a, a shift from uh, a conservative business culture to what is becoming a proto-liberal progressive-ish culture in Virginia, I think we'll land somewhere that's center left. But uh, I just realized, uh, I, I dabbled in history. I'm, was, I'm Phi Alpha Theta, um, the History Honor Society from Mary Washington. And so I, it, it was a, a passion of mine just to document this all as a primary source for the future. So we have the luxury of not caring how many people listen episode by episode or advertisers or anything like that, because that's not the point. The point is the academics who come later, the journalists who listen later and go back and refer um, to the podcast. And in a way, because I do public affairs and messaging um, with my other hat that I do in the business, you know, we kind of set the tone uh, we use the podcast, I should say, to set the tone for what the message should be, uh, how people really of both um, Republican, let's call them dissatisfied Republicans and Democrats, should be thinking about the issues before um, the legislature and the General Assembly. And we, we try to connect it, uh, of course, to national politics as well, but there's plenty of those podcasts. So, so you talk about the uh, the changing changing political state in Virginia, I think one of the biggest indicators of that was the blue wave that we saw in 2017 with the state legislature flipping as many seats as they did. Uh, and uh, I know there are a lot of people who claim at least partial credit for that happening. You're one of them. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about um, founding the Competitive Commonwealth Fund, how that got started. Sure. Um, well, that is actually a very fun story. So the Competitive Commonwealth Fund started um, in my mind, in the summer of 2016, before Hillary lost. And it was actually supposed to be a victory lap. Um, I love challenging common knowledge and what 
everybody assumes to be true. And at the time, uh, again, pre-Trump winning, the Democratic Party, at least in Virginia, the prevailing common knowledge was uh, don't run candidates in deep red areas because one, you're just wasting your money and everybody's time. They're going to get spanked and you're going to energize the Republicans. So they're going to raise more money just to spend it against your um, Democrats. And so I just one day, um, it was a slow summer in conversation with my boss at the time, Delegate Paul Krizak, um, and we worked in very close quarters. We just started challenging that assumption. And he says, Thomas, I want you to go home. I want you to actually look all of this up, run all the numbers and data and tell me what you find. And what I found was actually, well, yes, the Republican will raise double or so the amount or even more of the amount that they would have raised if you didn't run against them. They spend that money almost exclusively on themselves and a safe to them what should be a safe red seat, right? So what we did was we realized, oh, we what we found the data that shows you need a full court press. You need to run candidates everywhere, even in these deep red seats, because what happens is for every one Democratic dollar you spend up to 60 grand in that seat, uh, unwinnable seat, you're making the Republicans spend eight Republican dollars. And that makes it easier to pick up the seats in tier one and tier two in the margin. So what happened is we just kind of hit the curve. Um, we had always planned to launch the day after election day. Um, and our image that we had on the website at the time was uh, from the DNC convention with Hillary and Tim Kaine, like waving at the crowd in celebration, which we then of course had to change um, like while everybody else is like crying, tears coming down their face in 2016, I'm like, oh, got to bottle it up. I'm calling Trent, who uh, was the House Caucus Executive Director at the time, who was very mad at me for calling him at 10 a.m. the next day <laughs> of the election, uh, still probably hungover. And uh, I said, hey, we got to launch. And we changed our messaging from a victory lap to uh, resistance uh, fight back. And so then we spent the beginning of 2017, um, while the legislature was in session, um, I was conspiring with John Bell, um, who was a delegate at the time, to find candidates. And so he is calling up, uh, we start with uh, the Democratic chairs of every county uh, office, or every county party, and we ask them, file. Just, like, if you don't have a candidate in, in mind, will you just step up? And every once in a while, um, we would find that like money, uh, ballot access was always an impediment. And so what we did was we said, okay, what if we could make it an entirely cost-neutral endeavor for you just to get on the ballot um, and make that Republican start spending money? And then if you're on the Titanic, go raid the liquor cabinet, have fun, know you're sinking. Um, and that was really... <laughs> that was really what the philosophy was. So we would give everybody $2,500 um, or, or $3,000, I think is what it was, um, to get them started. Uh, and like one of them, by the way, was Rodney Willett. Uh, we paid uh, an emergency $1,500 of all places to get him on the ballot uh, and then yelled. We had John Bell then bully the Democratic committee chair um, into refunding that money because it was entirely too much and extortion and it, that was you don't want to get on john bell's bad side i'll just say that much <laughs> and um so we 
we rinsed and repeat. We gave ourselves a very manageable raise of $60,000 and a very manageable candidate recruitment goal of 15 candidates that we in part recruited and in part adopted. And there was a lot of people that wound up having overlapping um, agendas and priorities and other groups start you know, forming up after this. And actually, candidate, excuse me, candidate recruitment became a lot easier than we thought it was going to be because um, that had always been tough. Um, and remember, I came in as a staffer in the House of Delegates when there were only 32. My very first session, we did not have enough House Democrats to stop, um, uh, you know, to, to stop the like, overturning a veto or something like that. So it was pretty bad uh, that year. Uh, Terry McCullough's first year in office is <laughs> when I was there. So uh, that, was, that, that was rough. So um, anyway, so fast forward to um, 2016, candidates are getting in and, and, and everything, and we're really starting to hit. And I think we had like something like 88 candidates out of 100 that year. Um, and, and the Competitive Commonwealth Fund, I, if anything, I don't necessarily take credit for um, the results or anything like that. I take credit for um, taking out, uh, it was like $1.8 million of Republican money that they had to spend reelecting Terry Kilgore um, and stuff like that. Um, I take credit for that. I take credit um, for finding and recruiting some of these candidates uh, that have stayed in the game in other ways um, in a very um, early hands-off kind of role. And then the other thing I... Um, through the Competitive Commonwealth Fund, um, we take credit for, is for really inspiring the Democratic Caucus to run everywhere, uh, contest every race. And we got really severe pushback in 2016 before the party was on that agenda. And there's some really good people um, still there at the party who saw the wisdom in what we were advocating and created a environment where everybody's feathers were smoothed out that enabled us to um, do that. And we partnered with some of the rich liberal donors um, who everybody knows now, um, Sasha Gupta, Ed Rice, Tom Hurst, um, Wendy and Dario Marquez. They called themselves the Blue Angels at the time. And we got them each to just contribute 15 grand um, and plus some of the other stuff we were doing with the um, small dollar contributors. But this is, of course, before everybody gets on board with, uh, like, just give me $1. Like, this is pre all of that, right? So it's still how much money can we raise without taking money away from other people? It was, a very, it was very much a split the pie kind of numbers game uh, that Competitive Commonwealth Fund was. And then it was never, of course, intended to be anything. At least I never intended it to be something that would continue. I wanted it to be a proof of concept beta test. And then it continued. Um, and so I left um, the fund when I became the lobbyist for the laborers union. You cannot bring your own political agendas into an in-house position like that. Uh, so I stepped away then. Uh, and I never regret that moment. It was one of the best decisions I ever made. Thomas, I, you know, I, I know you and Robert have both worked in politics. I, I have not officially worked in politics um, to this point. And and the, what you just kind of described about this whole kind of concept of of running almost as uh, to occupy the opponent and to kind of be a distraction, like that's something I was listening to um, um, a podcast actually the other day, and it was talking with a potential someone who was thinking about running against Mitch McConnell, and Chuck Schumer was basically like, 
you know, we don't expect anyone to beat him, but we want to distract him. You know, we want to you know, make him have to raise money. We need to, you know, divert his attention. And I'm curious with you, you know, it seems like that was kind of the initial aim, but as you got candidates actually in there and running, did, did you see, you know, was it all about just, you know, occupying the opponent or was it, you know, did you see other, other aims and other, other results that, that came about just because, I mean, who knows when, whenever you get the the right circumstances, I mean, you might actually win one of those races. Yeah, exactly. And so what we found is, uh, I think, I think you win one in 30 of those races. I, that was one of the numbers I crunched and I forgive me because it's been a few years since I went back, I've gone back and looked at them, but yeah, that was, um, you, you do win one of those, like an October surprise race every once in a while, or maybe the candidate dies, or the Republican or the somebody dies. Right. And so you're just there that does happen. And so, yeah, you want your people to be there. Um, and then the mission at the Competitive Commonwealth Fund did evolve. Um, once you pass the filing deadline, right, if your whole shtick is recruit candidates, then there's nothing else to do. So what we did was, uh, well, one, I like messaging and um, digital video and all that stuff. So what we did was we said, okay, we've got a bunch of money left over uh, that we can take for these 15 candidates. And rather than just add to the piles of other candidates who didn't need necessarily our money, we decided to beta test um, some, uh, I think we picked five of the candidates who we felt were most likely to win on election day. And by the way, three of those went into recounts. Three of those five candidates went into recounts. Of course, none of them won. And that was never what we thought would happen. Uh, but we came close with five of them and three of them within 100 votes or so. So uh, we ended up uh, throwing, I'm trying to remember how much money it was. It was not very much. It was like maybe $5,000 a district or something like that into digital where we pioneered like hyper local messaging um, to attack uh, the Republicans on their Medicaid expansion vote at the time. Uh, so there's a vote to hide chemicals in, um, hide, hide some of the chemicals that they were using in uh, I think it was like fracking or in, in wastewater treatment or whatever that could leak out into the public uh, that Chris Head, for example, voted for to hide these chemicals. And so um, environmentalism is something that we all felt strongly about, but it was also nascent, right? This is before the anti-pipeline stuff really kicks up. Uh, no one's really talking about that yet, but everybody, of course, knows that global warming is on the, well, looming. Um, and are happening and that we need to start taking environmentalism seriously. And so we start beta testing hyper-local environmentalist messages um, just to see what happens, to, to see if they start responding to them. And some of them hit, some of them didn't hit. And, you know, that's why you beta test. Uh, but yeah, uh, the Medicaid expansion one hit everywhere um, and actually moved some poll numbers uh, I think hit Roxanne Robinson pretty hard, uh, and that ends up that ends up, of course, being what all the Democrats run on uh, in 2018 uh, nationally. So, uh, you know, that that's where that kind of fits in. And we didn't use we didn't need a lot of money to do it. And it, I don't know how you judge that effort against better funded, like run everywhere efforts or whatever. But the way I look at it is, we are like. Um, well, if you're like falling from a great height into the water, it helps if you like 
break the surface tension of the water before you hit it, right? So I look at us as whatever that object was that broke the surface tension um, before the party hits the water, you know, so. I'm curious, um, you know, you mentioned uh, with Transition Virginia and thinking of it kind of from a historical record standpoint, how does that change how you approach that podcast? And how, do, how does that change the, the types of conversations you're trying to have if, if you're really, you know, kind of thinking down the line of, of what we want people to look back on? Yeah, it actually makes it harder um, in a lot, well, harder and easier in a lot of ways because you can focus, when we plan out our episodes, we can focus and we know what we don't want it to be. Because it's a historical record, we don't actually want another crossfire debate show. Um, and so we did a little bit of that with the redistricting amendment episode, but what we tried to do was move past the should I vote yes, should I vote no debate and say, okay, well, what does Virginia look like if everyone votes yes or if everybody votes no? Um, and that, so that anti-debate show philosophy um, is what tracks how we come up with episodes and how we, the, the questions that we ask. And also, um, I am, I used to be a Republican. I'm now a Democrat and used to be a Republican like 2009 and before. Um, I actually don't believe that anybody has a responsibility to feature um, a Republican or a Democrat uh, opinion just to have a Republican or a Democrat opinion. Um, and that's something we're able to do because we're an independent podcast, right? We don't have to fight with an editor or something. But um, very early on, Michael really, Michael felt strongly that we needed to feature Republicans regularly, and I agreed. Um, and then how did we feature them without it becoming a debate show, which becomes harder? And then you start saying, okay, well, who can you approach? Who understands what it is? And then, of course, can appear on a podcast regularly and commit to that. And then the, it narrows down more and more and more. And then all you have are people who are motivated for whatever it is they're trying to push, right? And so I just put my foot down very early on and said, look, if we have a Republican, we have a Republican. But I'm not interested in having a Republican just so they can spout anti-climate change like bullshit or anti-health like health care bullshit. Um, or racist stuff, like, or even like repackaging old ideas into like for a new audience. Like, I'm not using my vehicle for that. Um, if I want to, like, if uh, we want a Republican perspective, it's going to be a much more nuanced perspective because we're trying to skip past the whole debate of that moment that evolves. Like, the, you know, by the time we publish an episode, like on redistricting or whatever, like maybe the ball has moved in those like five days or whatever it's taken from recording to publishing, right? So we don't want to be newsy. We don't want to have a debate that's a time capsule that nobody listens to later on. So that's how we come up with our episodes and that's how it guides our content. So I want to shift gears a little bit and uh, rather than talking about the historical perspective, think about uh, maybe what could be a historical event coming up in the next couple of weeks, which is, uh, of course, the general election, uh, November 3rd. Um, obviously, a, a lot of folks looking at national storylines, but what do you see in Virginia, particularly in the congressional races? Um, so for the win-losses in the congressional races, I think, I think the Dems are going to hold everything that they've already won in Virginia. They're going to pick up the 5th District, in my opinion, uh, and 
I do not think Rashid is going to win, but I think it is possible that he breaks 45. And if you, what his goal should be is to come as close to 50% as he can if he doesn't think he can win and then be the guy that they draw. Well, hopefully, like I actually support a Project Blue Map. I'll just say this out of uh, the alleged Project Blue Map. There does not exist. But, uh, this is just in my theory, but I would love to have that district drawn for him or like for somebody in Stafford. Um, conceptually, they'll be moving that first district up anyway, just because of population shift. So um, it'll be easier for a Democrat to run there and win starting in 2022. And I think Rashid would be a great candidate for then. Um, I do not think we beat uh, anybody else. Seems like it'd be hard to draw a district um, where he could win in 2022 and then also protect Cameron Webb in Charlottesville. Yeah, uh, so I keep in mind I'm a Northern Virginian, so I know Northern Virginia the best. So presumably if you shift the 8th into Arlington, Fairfax, or excuse me, Arlington, Alexandria, you shift Jerry Connolly's uh, 11th district into a Fairfax County primary district, uh, and then... The 10th is going to be north of 66, more or less, following 66 still, but shifted in, right? And maybe, and maybe you go back to something like more like the old Tom Perriello district in the 5th district. And then uh, the 1st district is going to come up to be more Prince William and Stafford just off population shift, right? This is like, I, I've not had any conversations with policymakers, like, considering these maps. I'm just looking at it critically, right? So you're going to move the 1st district up to where all the community, like the population is. And then uh, it's possible for the first district to win or to flip Democrat from there. The fifth district, I, again, I don't know the geography as well in the fifth district. I just know a couple of things. One, uh, it's got a few blue diamonds in it, <laughs> uh, like just blue or sapphires, I should say, blue sapphires everywhere. And then it's surrounded by a sea of ruby red. Uh, but it's 20% black. It's 20% or excuse me, it's 20% black. It's um, uh, very uh, educated. And these are things that bode well for a serious moderate Democratic candidate that Kim, uh, Cameron Webb is. Um, I don't think you could have a firebrand progressive get elected right now um, out of Charlottesville, even though there might be some there. Um, and so I think Webb... Webb meets the moment, in my opinion, for 2020. I thought it was interesting, the, um, the picture of him, I guess, yesterday or two days ago with Denver Riggleman when he uh, visited his distillery um, that uh, the Roanoke Times was uh, there, to, there to capture. And so, yeah, it's, um, that's going to be an interesting result. It seems to me, Thomas, you, know, you, you said you're in favor of Project Blue Map. I'm, I'm curious how, how you have seen the way Democrats have responded to this Amendment 1. And you mentioned you guys did, a, did an episode about it. But how, how have you thought about the way that you know, it's in the official Democratic platform to, to be against Amendment 1? It, it, it kind of feels like anyone who's running for statewide office is, is or thinking about running for statewide office is kind of supporting it. Um, but what's, what's your take on how Democrats have handled it? And it seems like you yourself might, might be against it if you're for, for Project Blue Map. Yeah. Well, and again, it's just me personally for uh, alleged Project Blue Map. Uh, look, there's, and there's, by the way, there's no indication that that's even something they're discussing. And Ralph Northam has sure. been very clear that he will not sign a partisan gerrymandered map regardless of what happens with this constitutional amendment. 
So that's just kind of, in my opinion, Thomas Bowman's personal fantasy. But yeah, um, if I were the speaker, I would not have ever let this constitutional redistricting amendment get to the floor in year two. And the reason for that is that it was written by the Republicans to be something that would let them hold on. Uh, I don't know why you would want that. Like once you're in power, like why like, you nibble around the edges when you're in the minority and it's the best you can do. Why in the world would you try to make that your marquee signature piece of legislation that nobody wanted, right? So no, none of the activists asked to preserve legislative power in drawing these maps. Nobody wants that. And so what you have is a very Orwellian uh, last resort, last ditch effort by the Republican, former Republican majority to try to get something passed with political messaging that makes it so the Dems are, or that in theory would hurt the Dems to go against. But then what you have is, at least in the House, almost the entire Black Caucus speaks with a very unanimous voice. And I'm like, I actually was pro uh, yes on one at the beginning. And then when I heard the Black Caucus speak in an one voice, which, by the way, doesn't happen all that often in Virginia. Um, I reconsidered my position. And when I thought through, actually, like, what happens if it passes? And this thing is so half-baked um, that I realized that it's just not, in my opinion, something that's good for Virginia. It's not that easy to change the Constitution. So the people who say you can go just go back and fix it are far more likely to need to just throw everything out and rewrite the 1976 Virginia governing document because it's not relevant anymore. So why, like, why are we doing this, in, like, in my opinion? And then just as a power play, the way I would have played it is um, kill that redistricting amendment, propose the real one working with your stakeholders who just got you elected that and and pledge that right and so you have your 21 candidates running on that you would have um like you could bring it up in 20 that's fine like it it can't the full thing can't pass until um 22 and then the full election i guess but like you can bring it up it's fine um and that's what I would have done. I would have given everybody like, okay, here's what our real agenda is that everybody asked for. We are not even going to bring this to a vote on the floor because it's um, like, this is not good for Virginia. And then, um, you know, people are going to say what they're going to say and the Republicans are going to say what the Republicans are going to say no matter what. So why are we going to like beat around the bush, right? Just do it. Yeah, I... It's funny. I, I'm kind of in the opposite. I, I was about a month and a half ago. We did an episode with uh, with Brian Cannon, who obviously is on one side of that that issue. I was really kind of undecided about it a month and a half ago, and I I came to support it actually, despite you know yeah. I I've never voted Republican in my life. Um, and and I think it's I wonder if Democrats are kind of playing with fire a little bit with that because I, I wonder like what you say. You know, it should be nonpartisan. There shouldn't be legislators involved. But I don't know if that's realistic. And I think they know it's not realistic and it can't be passed. And so I wonder if, you know, because um, even I think the Mercury had a story last week where um, Delegate Price even said, you know, she was trying to bring this up and she couldn't get support for it for the, the nonpartisan. And I just wonder if if Democrats are playing with fire a little bit on that on that issue. 
Yeah, and it's by the way, it's not something that anybody's going to be changing their vote on as far as an issue goes, uh, especially when right. the Republican Party has been very clear um, where it stands uh, on every other issue. Nobody's going to be changing their vote based off how their legislator voted on this constitutional amendment, in my opinion. Yeah, it does put the Democrats in a tough messaging position. And I 100% agree with you that Dems are playing with fire because it does open the Dems up to being attacked both from the left and from the right, right? So it's almost, um, one way to look at it is the Republicans put a gun on the table, pulled the trigger first for Russian roulette, and then said, okay, now it's your turn, right? Well, why are you picking it up? <laughs> Right, like this is why are you playing this game? Don't play their game, and that's uh, that's why I wouldn't have brought it to the floor in the first place. And I thought I did think it was a bad idea, uh, but the Dems were in a bind because it was an election promise that they did, and they didn't feel strong enough that um, that they could go through with it. And also, of course, it was a negotiating point, right? The Republicans wanted it, so what do you do to get a vote on something else that you need a Republican vote for? You give them a floor vote on the amendment. Uh, well, obviously, the uh, redistricting would not change this election. It's going to be for future elections. And the first uh, future election after we get 2020 out of the way uh, is going to be the statewide uh, race for governor in 2021. Virginia is uh, sort of unique in that way. We've got elections every single year, every November. Um, Democratic primary field is pretty crowded right now uh, for, for that uh, governor's office. How does that look to you? Well, I still see it as wide open. Uh, so if you have a five or six way race in Virginia and it's who it's majority wins, plurality wins in Virginia, right? So there's no 50%, there's no runoff. Then after a certain point, uh, after a certain threshold of candidates, it becomes whoever has the greatest name ID, right? So the question is, like, what is the name idea of all those candidates going to be if you have more than five candidates in the race? And then does Terry McAuliffe get in? Because if Terry McAuliffe gets in, nobody has more name ID than Terry McAuliffe, and you can just pack it up. Like, it's not happening. Um, the LG's race, very interesting. Uh, again, you have a lot of candidates in that race, and I think it's going to come down at the end in June to name ID. Uh, just based off you know, the record of elections. And name ID in the coronavirus era is probably going to be Twitter following and social media following and who can adapt um, to TikTok or other new platforms as they come online the best. Um, you know, Lee Carter has a cult following that puts him like a guaranteed 15 or 20%. So if you have... Lily Carter coming in at 15 or 20% and you have like 10 candidates running for governor. That's, a, that's exactly how Donald Trump won. <laughs> so uh, for president, uh, the primary at least. So yeah, so that's the model for whoever's running for governor is who can jack up their name ID as high as possible before it's GOTV time. Do you think that means that uh, if, if Terry chooses to get in the race and certainly there are a lot of people talking about that, Will that be a, a trigger for maybe some of the other candidates to want to coalesce and say, you know, I'm, I'm the not Terry candidate and the other folks who are going to run are stepping aside to support that? Or, or are they not talking about that at this point? No. Well, my experience in Virginia politics is that everybody has their own ego. And so all, 
Um, I'll, I'll give you the eighth district 2014 race, which I worked for Patrick Hope on that race. And it was Don Beyer versus everyone else, right? And so we had polling on the Patrick Hope race that would show that if everyone got out, like if, if all the other progressive candidates would get out, so if Mark Levine would get out, if Adam Eben would get out, their voters would default to um, Patrick Hope and that he could win. Now, of course, on election day, because that doesn't happen, not only do they stratify, but Don Byer still gets so many default votes that like, even if you were to combine all the protest votes, Don Byer still wins. So you need that to happen early. If, you know, if the other candidates are going to drop out, they got to do it between now and March if they're going to drop out. And I don't, in March, everybody still thinks they have a shot, right? And so, uh, no, I, I, I don't see people coalescing. Like, if Terry gets in right after the election, maybe. Um, then other people, by the way, are still going to get in, presumably. And so does Foy, like, maybe the smartest move McClellan can make is to work out a deal to run on a ticket with Terry McAuliffe, right? And McClellan runs for LG since there's nine or so candidates in the race and nobody has a huge name. And I look at Fairfax. Fairfax has a very good chance of being reelected to LG, but he's not going to do anything else, right, in his career, period. So um, whoever comes next, like, it's a wide open field for him. And uh, there's a lot of energy behind Guzman. There's a lot of energy with Hala Ayala. Uh, but there's way more than that, and there's even more than that in the wings. So, you know, best case scenario, most likely for a smooth transition. But uh, and by the way, this is not a value statement on which candidate I like the most because this is none of these necessarily. Um, uh, Terry McAuliffe gets in the race, brokers a deal um, with uh, uh, McClellan to go run for LG, and then. Uh, most likely Mark Herring's getting reelected. He is wildly popular. Um, the administration still acts like it's day three of the, of the scandal, but the reality is they're running laps around the Republicans every day and they should just keep their chin up. You know, it's, uh, I was actually going to bring that up, Thomas, you know, it feels like with Terry McAuliffe potentially running with the, the three, you know, statewide elected officials and kind of what they went through that maybe derailed, you know, kind of Fairfax and hearings ambitions for, for higher office potentially. But, you know, I, I was just curious from, from the Democrat side, because it feels like, you know, as your podcast is called transitioning, you know, to a more blue state that Democrats are in a, are in a good spot statewide, but how do you think it just impacts, um, you know, kind of the, the 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 progressive movement, so to speak, within the Democratic Party, and kind of the having the top of the ticket and the statewide officials. You know, what kind of ripple down effects does does that have with everything that's gone on in these last few years? Uh, well, I think the first question is who really wins in November twenty twenty, because I think the energy in the room is different if you still have Trump in office um, as opposed to if you have Biden in office, and Biden also could answer some questions for us, right? There might be room in a Biden administration for Terry McAuliffe. There might be room in a Biden administration for one of Virginia's senators. And then all of a sudden you have to appoint a senator, right? And and who do you appoint? Maybe you take somebody like a McClellan or something, somebody like that and just get them out of the, get them off the bench more or less. Um, I don't know what they would have planned, but there is a lot of um, possibilities up in the air. Um, 
I don't know that there's a room. I don't know that there's room in Biden's cabinet for um, McAuliffe. He wants, well, historically, he's wanted uh, ambassador to England. And so at some point, he's going to have to ask himself, if he's offered ambassador to England, does he still want that? Or would he rather be governor of a trifecta? And I don't know what he's going to come down, like what he's going to say, right? Like the offer one needs to get made in the first place. So, you know, I, presumably Terry's going to wait to make an announcement until there's some kind of offer on the table from President Biden. Um, and then he's going to have to make up his own mind at that time. Uh, and, but yeah, the, uh, Dems are in a good place and we're coming up to a threshold here where there's going to be a lot of movement very quickly. And so that progressive energy, um, I, if you really trace the history of the progressive movement back um, to recent history, at least um, the modern progressive movement, I, I would say that it kind of starts with Jim Webb um, and Jim Webb, you have the, the Turks and uh, everyone getting together to um, get him elected, beat George Allen, who was a very popular Republican up until um, his, his own scandal. Um, and, and the progressives fall into this pattern of get the, moderate, get the moderate elected on election day and then become very dissatisfied with them thereafter. Um, and for whatever reason, that seems to be what continues with a few exceptions. Um, uh, Warner and Kane just get better with age, like a fine wine. Uh, and uh, I have a feeling Terry McAuliffe will as well. But yeah, there, I, the, there's going to be a lot of turnover and it depends on who fills those spots, right? So to see a price run for Bobby Scott's seat um, and one like as his niece, she's waiting on it. And then, like she's also very liberal, right? So and and militantly so. So you're all of a sudden going to have a character change that starts at the top with our congressional delegation. Where if you have some of these, um, as Mark Levine would call them, aggressive progressives uh, getting elected, um, like the eighth district's going to flip over one day soon. Don Beyer like is not going to be there forever. Um, you know, Jerry Connolly has his own ambitions. I have no idea what he's got in mind, right? Um, and you know, the reality is things just are continually refreshing, continually changing. And sometimes the progressives hold on, sometimes they don't. And the reality is that I think we're going to wind up somewhere center left um, when this is all said and done, because you're going to have a lot of dissatisfied Republicans, Virginia being set up to run as a machine state, uh, always has been. Uh, they're going to just see the writings on the wall and they're going to switch parties or something like that. It might have, this might be a process that happens over time, but the Republican party cannot survive in Virginia the way it's currently constituted or constituted. So they're going to have to change. And how did the Dems respond to that change um, is, is going to determine what kind of patronage positions the progressives get. Thomas, that's uh, it's great analysis and it's a lot to think about. Um, really appreciate you making time for us today. Before we let you go, I want to ask you uh, one last question, which we've posed to all of our guests here on the podcast, uh, which is, what is a leadership question that you have learned throughout your career that you wish someone would have shared with you uh, when you were in undergrad? Yeah. Um, and this really comes from my experience um, traveling or challenging um, 
common knowledge or perceived common knowledge. Um, how do you know what you think you know is, is something that you should always ask yourself. But two, realize that for the most part, um, people don't, nobody really knows what they're doing. So just start walking. And if you want to be in politics, just get yourself as close to politics as you can be. If you want to be uh, like in real estate, you would go try to get yourself as close to real estate as you can be, right? And it doesn't necessarily matter what you did in undergrad at all. Um, it's who likes you, it's who you know, and how, uh, how much can you hustle? And if you can do all of those things, you've got a career. And then if you happen to be right when you challenge common knowledge, uh, you can make your career and your name off that. So spend your 20s hustling. Thanks so much to Thomas Bowman for joining us. Thank you to Robert Greer for co-hosting. And thank you to our new producers, Ben Feldman and Ben Teese, who are doing an excellent job in helping to put this podcast together. We will be back with another episode next week. Stay safe.